0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. It's wonderful to join you again for worship, to appear before the Lord, and to encourage one another and minister to one another. Uh, it's, a, it's really a privilege to be back with you, and I want you to know, again, I mentioned it last or several weeks ago, but your brothers and sisters just north of you in Algona are praying for you right now, and, um, and just this morning, Pastor Peter and I were, were praying for Oak Hill and for all the members here. So, well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 4. In my church, we are preaching through the book of James in a sermon series entitled Faith Works. And several weeks ago, we came to James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. James chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. James writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Thus ends this reading of God's inerrant and sufficient word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Father, as we appear before you this morning, as we gather this Lord's Day, I pray that you would meet with your people. I pray that you would grant um, your people ears to hear and that we would not merely be hearers of the word so deceiving ourselves, but that we would do what it says that we would be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind from one degree of glory to the next. And Lord, I pray that you would grant me clarity as I seek to share with your people, and that you would use your unprofitable servant for your namesake. For the sake of the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in his name, amen. You know, if you were to ask my wife to describe me in one term... That's always a dangerous thing, right? Uh, She would probably say, I'm a nerd. And that's that's a pretty accurate statement. I like to study things. I like to analyze things. One of the things that I love the most to look into, to delve into, to read about is is history. I I studied history in college. I enjoyed history uh, in church history and seminary. I'm thinking about pursuing a PhD in in that category. I, I, I love history, and I think I have a biblical precedent and a biblical reason for doing so. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're given the Hall of Faith where the author of Hebrews um, writes about the Old Testament saints as a paradigm, as an example, and as motivation for the New Testament saints and how they are to live by faith in the power of the Spirit and achieve great things for God. And so history has a way of teaching us. And I love history for two particular reasons, particularly church history. And that is because, number one, I find motivation and an example for my own life. That as I look back at what God has done in the past, I am reminded of his faithfulness. I am reminded of the power of his spirit. And I find encouragement for myself because the same God, the same spirit that dwelt in those heroes of the faith in previous generations also dwells in me. And if he could use them, then he can use me too. The other reason I find church history encouraging is because as you look back throughout history, both church history and also redemptive history that is found in scripture, you discover that every one of those men and women had feet of clay. They too were sinners. That they too had their foibles and inconsistencies. And as you look back at those inconsistencies, that that may seem like a weird reason to be encouraged, but but think of it like this. God, in His grace, was able to overcome their sin and achieve great things. And that means He can do the same for us today as well. They were sinners, and He was a Savior. There's only been one perfect man, and that's not us. And when we allow Jesus to be Jesus, that frees us up to be ourselves, to, to come to the Lord with open hands, to say, I need you in everything and in anything that I do. You know, one of the greatest examples that I find of those two categories somebody who provides a wonderful example, someone who was clearly empowered by the Holy Spirit, someone who achieved great things for God, and it motivates me, but at the same time, a man who was marked by his own sin was, was none other than Martin Luther himself. As I look back through church history, I'm fascinated by the Reformation in the 1500s, uh, the Protestant Reformation, where they, you had the rediscovery of the gospel. Where you had men like Luther studying the word of God. And they were saying, okay, let's set aside tradition for a second. Let's set aside teachings and the opinions of men. Let's see what the word of God says. And as they did so, they came to the conclusion that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, as revealed in Scripture. These men helped to reform the church according to the Bible. They stood for truth in a time of darkness and superstition. They were a light in a dark world. They did great things. In Luther's case, he actually translated the Bible into the common language that the average person might read it for the first time in roughly a thousand years. But as I mentioned earlier, they also had feet of clay. They had inconsistencies with their walk with Christ. And Luther was no different. Luther was known to have a short temper and a sharp tongue. And sometimes he would use that tongue to attack people. And in one specific situation, a disagreement arose among the Reformers about the nature of the Lord's table. They were discussing what exactly does communion mean? What does it signify? What does it symbolize? What's its reality? And and Luther was outraged that other Christians would take a different position from himself. He was incensed, and instead of just dealing with the subject matter, he attacked the people behind those different opinions. And one of the men he attacked was Heinrich Bullinger, who was himself a godly man. He was a pastor in Zurich who was seeking to love his people, to point them to Christ, to preach the word. And instead of dealing with the issue at hand, Luther wrote a scathing review of Heinrich Bullinger for disagreeing about, with him about the nature of the Lord's table. He wrote this letter to Bullinger and then he published this letter to everybody and anybody to see. And in that letter, he just trashed him. He questioned his leadership, he questioned his character, he even questioned his faith. And so Bullinger receives this letter, and as he reads this letter, he's stunned. How could this man who is a hero of the faith, who has translated the Bible into the common language, who has preached the word faithfully year in and year out, who has brought about so much light, how could he turn on me like this? How could he attack me personally like this? This is a man who was a hero to me. This is a man that I esteemed. How how exactly am I supposed to respond to this? He doesn't just send it to me personally. He blasts me in front of everybody. My, My people in my church are reading this. And so Bullinger did what I think godly men should do. He reached out to other godly men for guidance. He said, okay, what's the biblical thing to do here? (laughs) I want to lash out. I want to respond in kind. I'm so angry. I'm so hurt. And so he reached out to a pastor in Geneva, and he wrote to him, and he told him the entire story. And then the pastor in Geneva wrote him back, and he, he wrote a letter Offering guidance, biblical guidance about how Bullinger was supposed to respond. I want to read you an excerpt from that letter. He writes, quote, You will do yourselves no good by quarreling, except that you may afford some sport to the wicked, so that they may triumph not so much over us as over the gospel. If they see us rending each other asunder, then they give full credit to what we say. But when with one consent and with one voice we preach Christ, they avail themselves unwarrantably of our inherent weakness to cast reproach upon our faith. I wish, therefore, that you will consider and reflect on these things rather than on what Luther has deserved by his violence. Lest it happen to you, which Paul threatens, that by biting and devouring one another, ye be consumed one of another. Even should he have provoked us, we ought rather to decline the contest than to increase the wound by the general shipwreck of the church. Okay, that's a lot of lofty language in in Old English. Let me try to put that in Pastor Patrick's paraphrase, okay? What this pastor is saying to Bullinger is, listen, I know it hurts. I know it's hard. He trashed you. He completely threw your reputation in the dumpster. But Bullinger, there's something deeper here. There's something more at stake than your personal reputation. There's something more on the line than how you feel at this moment. And so for the sake of Christ, Bullinger, I'm going to ask you not to respond in kind. For the sake of the gospel and the cause of the gospel, going forth to other people, I'm going to ask you to suck it up and drive on. Because listen, Bullinger, if you respond in kind, you say what you say, he says what he says, and this turns into a full-out war of words, all the people around us that are not Christians, that are not part of the church, are going to look at that and say, see, I told you so. They're no different than the rest of us. There's no power in the gospel. See how they love each other? I mean, look at this. They're trashing each other in public. Bullinger, you got to take it on the chin. And you can't attack them back. And I think that's what James is telling us in our passage today as well. He is telling us how to preserve the reputation of the gospel. He is telling us why this is important, why it matters for the sake of the church. And the reason I say that is because right there at the beginning of verse 11, we are told by James, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The emphasis is on the brothers. You see, this isn't an attempt to stop conflict and to enter, usher in world peace out in the ether somewhere, kind of, sort of. No, no, this has specific application for the church. Why? Because we are brothers and sisters. That through the gospel, we have been adopted into the family of faith, with God as our Father, with other Christians as our brothers and sisters. Which means we have one name with one purpose, with one family, and one identity. It's why we gather together for worship. Friends, we don't speak evil of one another because there's something more at stake than your personal reputation. There's something more on the line than merely what you feel you have to say. You are brothers in Christ. You are united in the gospel. There's another reason why I think this passage has specific application to Christians within the confines of the local church. And that is because verse 11 and 12, which we just read, are a continuation of the argument that James began earlier on in the chapter, starting in verse 1. In verse 1, we are told what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire or do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you Do not ask. Keen on that first first part of verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James is specifically dealing with the church, with Christians. And he is saying there shouldn't be division among the people of God. You're one family. And in that sense, verse 11 and verse 12 are a prescription for the unity of the church. For the clarity of the gospel and for the sake of the name of Christ, we would do well to listen. Because you realize the fights and quarrels that take place in the church more often than not are not fights and quarrels that take place with guns and swords. No, the quarreling and fighting and divisions that take place within the church are generally wars of words. It's what we say behind each other's backs. It's what we say to each other's faces. It's the letters we write. It's the words we text. It's the things we post on social media. That's where the quarrels and the divisions and the fights and the controversies take place in the church. And friends, it ought not to be so. And if we look back to Scripture, we are told that we are not to have these fights amongst us. It was the Lord Jesus himself that said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Instead, Christians are commanded to encourage one another and build each other up, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. We are always to be gracious in our speech, Colossians 4.6. Even when we defend the faith, we are called to do so with gentleness and respect, 1 Peter 3.15. In Ephesians 4.15, the apostle Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is ahead, into Christ. Paul is saying that one of the clearest indicators that you are mature in Christ is reflecting his character by what you say. And that means that we guard the unity of the church by guarding our words. And that's our first point. We guard the unity of the church by guarding our words. Now, in verse 11, we are told not to speak evil against one another, brothers. And that those words, speak evil against them, ESV, is actually a Greek compound word, kataleleo. It has the idea of um, speaking down to or speaking against somebody specifically. Other translations render it as slander, but while speaking evil against does encompass slandering, it's also more than that. This can take multiple forms, and I just want to take a couple, take a couple of moments to walk through different forms that tend to rear, rear their head in the church that we must guard ourselves against. And one of those is slander. And slander is the act of lying about someone with the intent of causing others to view that person in a negative light. And and, and it seems like Scripture has a lot to say about these things, speaking evil and guarding our words. And we might think to ourselves, listen, dude, they're they're just words. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. It's just what you say. After all, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I teach that to my kids. And yet the Bible says this has no place amongst the people of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, the NIV translates the words of the Apostle Paul this way, But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. And so again, we may not think of it as that big of a deal, but the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, wait a minute. There's a line here. There's a clear delineation between the church on one side and the world on the other. Christians don't act this way. And one of the ways that we are distinct from the world is by what we say and what we don't say. And notice the list of sins that the Apostle Paul places here. Sexual immorality, idolatry, drunkenness, swindling, that is, stealing. Paul is saying that if you claim to be a Christian and you are known to slander other people... You are in grave spiritual danger. You really need to check your heart. In fact, as the church, he commands us not even to hang out with somebody that does slander others. You're not even supposed to eat with such a person. These are very strong words. Is it really that big of a deal? I'd like to give you another story from church history. There's a It was a story of a young man in the Middle Ages who lived in a small European village, and he had this really bad habit of slandering people. He would tell tall tales about other people at their expense to others. And after one specifically, particularly heinous time of slander, he kind of felt bad about it. His conscience caught up to him, and he said, you know, I probably shouldn't have done that. That wasn't a good idea. I need to fix this. Tell you what, I'll go to the local abbey and ask the monks. They have wisdom, they'll know what to do. So he made his way over to the local abbey and he found one of the monks and he said, Mr. Monk, I got a problem. You see, Mr. Monk, I I just kind of trashed this other guy. I slandered him behind his back and and I don't know what to do about it. I kind of feel crummy about it. What do you recommend? And the monk thought about it for a second. He said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to your home. I want you to go to your bedroom. I want you to take your pillow. I want you to rip your pillow open. I want you to take feathers out of your pillow. And I want you to walk throughout the entire village. And I want you to place one of those feathers on each of the doorsteps of the people in the village. The young man thought about it for a second and said, oh, okay, that's weird, but sure, Why not? So he goes home, rips his pillow open, takes the feathers, walks throughout the village, and places a feather on each doorstep. Then he comes back to the monk and he kind of feels accomplished. He's done something, he feels justified in his own mind. He says, Mr. Monk, I've done what you told me to do. What's next? And the monk said to him, Okay, now I want you to go back throughout the village and I want you to pick up every one of the feathers that you dropped on the doorsteps of your neighbors. And the man replied, Are you serious? Like, have you been outside today? It's a really windy day. Like, there's no way those feathers are still there. They're completely gone. And the monk replied, so it is with your slanderous words. They have been blown all over town and are impossible to retrieve. Friends, let me be clear. Once you say things, they can't be unsaid. No, there is grace there is forgiveness for anyone and everyone who would repent and trust in Jesus. Why? Because the blood of Jesus is more powerful than your most heinous sin. And yet you realize that your words from an earthly perspective, from a temporal perspective, can do irreparable harm to the character and reputation of other people. It can damage the relationships you're in. In fact, The vast majority of the relationships that have been broken in your life were not broken by things that people have done. They were broken by things people said. And Christians are not called to slander. We're not called to tell tall tales about other people. But you realize, slander goes beyond simply telling tall tales. It goes beyond simply making it up whole cloth. It's not just when we make a complete lie as we go. It's also when we stretch the truth to fit our own objectives. It's the fish story. You've all know the fish story. The fish story is when I take my son fishing and we get home and by the, time the fish he caught was this big. By the time we still tell other people about it, it gets this big, right? It's when we stretch the truth, we massage the truth, we manipulate the truth to achieve our own purposes. When we tell a negative story about someone else and then we assume wrongful intentions or evil motivations on their part, motivations and intentions that are not in evidence or fact. I can't prove it. I don't know it. I'm just guessing, but... I'm going to pretend like that's actually what happened, even though I don't know. Friends, that too is slander, and Christians have no part in that. It's contrary to Christian love, to what Christians are called to do. Not only simply what we are not supposed to say, but also what we are commanded to say and how we are commanded to live. In 1 Corinthians 13, we are told love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things. Which means as Christians, we should never be known for a cynical attitude. That's not love. We should assume the best on the part of our brothers and sisters until it has been proven otherwise. We should hope for the best. Why? Because we love them. Until we have no other choice. Anything less than that is a lack of love and slander, according to the word of God. But the Bible doesn't just prohibit speaking down about someone when it's false. It also includes what saying things that may be true. That's what we refer to as gossip. And gossip is like slander in the sense that you are sharing something negative behind the back of somebody else, but it includes something that may be true. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, the Bible says, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. That's what the Apostle Paul does there. He says, I'm coming to the church, and there seem to be divisions within the church, and he categorizes different sins that cause division, and he puts gossip and slander right next to each other. Why does he do that? Because they're very similar to one another, and yet they're distinct. Now, does this mean that we can never tell a negative story about somebody else? No. I mean, if we're just being completely honest, there are times where the Bible calls us to share negative facts about somebody else. And there's two particular occasions where we're supposed to do that. The first is a case where we are seeking the sanctification of that person, where we're seeking the good of that person, where a person is in sin, it's obvious, it's flagrant. You go to that person and say, Brother, I'm really concerned about this. And he says, I don't see it. And then... At the lowest possible level, you go get another brother who sees the problem, and you guys go to him quietly, privately, and you say, Brother, we both see this. It's not just my personal opinion. It's what Scripture says, and here's your actions. And so for the sake of picking that person up, for encouraging them, for helping them when they fail and when they sin, to be more like Jesus, to grow in holiness and godliness, there may be a time where we have to go get that other person. But it's always a second Uh, second action, not the first. Our first is to go to that person privately. The other reason is for the safety. There may be a time where somebody's sin or somebody's actions places their own life or the lives of others or the well-being of others in jeopardy. And for the sake of safety, we have to share a negative story about that person in order to help somebody, in order to preserve life or preserve the well-being of other people. But friends, if we're completely honest with ourselves, the reasons why we gossip and the reasons why we slander have often very little to do with sanctification or safety. And a lot of times it just has to do with I want to look interesting in my particular conversation. That while we're on the subject, did you hear what so-and-so did? I have a juicy tidbit of information that I think will make you think I'm more interesting and will make you like me more. And friends that has no place among the people of God. Alistair Begg said, we should never report what would hurt another person unless concealing it would cause greater harm. Proverbs eleven thirteen we are told, he who goes about as a tailbearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. Historically, the church has recognized that we have a, re- we have a responsibility to guard our neighbor's good name. And so Christians are not called to slander we're certainly not called to gossip. But going back to verse 11, speaking evil against someone is not just what you say behind their back. It also can be what you say to their face. It's the idea of having an overly critical spirit. And this includes mocking people and tearing them down. The Bible refers to this as scorning. The, the, it's the idea of when you make jokes about somebody, when, hey, I'm just ribbing you, I'm just kidding you, but it gets, oh, it goes overboard. When you just feel the need to cut them down a size, either because you think they're arrogant or because you think they're bad at what they do. For some reason, you just keep taking shots. And the Bible says we are not to act this way. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, listen, that's just my personality. I call them like I see them, right? You want me to tell the truth, right? Yes, I do want you to tell the truth. But you realize telling the truth doesn't mean you have to say everything that pops into your head. And I had to learn this personally, right? This is not something I'm telling you. I'm, I'm preaching beyond my own sanctification here. I remember back when I was in seminary, my pastor and my mentor in Kentucky pulled me aside one day. And he said, you know, just because you, say, just because you think it doesn't mean you have to say it. And that was his kind Southern way of saying, shut up. <laughs> there are times where we go beyond simply speaking, and we speak words in the wind that we can't pull back and that hurt other people. And we are not to act like that. It's also referred to as grumbling and complaining. And this can take place to someone's face or it can also take place behind their back. And yet scripture says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked generation and a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I want you to think about that for a second. Paul is saying that one of the ways you stand out as a Christian one of the ways that your witness shines is not simply what you say, but also what you choose not to say. Christians don't grumble. Christians don't complain. And that's hard for us, right? I mean, after all, we're Americans. We go to the restaurant, we complain about the service. We finally get our food, we complain about the food. We, go, we drive home, we, we complain about our Ford. We go to work, we complain about our boss. We go home to our family, we complain about our mother-in-law. The last I'm just kidding about that. I love my mother-in-law. And yet, the Bible says that grumbling and complaining is not to mark the life of a Christian. It's not to characterize us. You know, we, don't, we generally don't think it's that big of a deal, but you realize that's exactly what, why the people of Israel were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years in the Old Testament. It's why God allowed poisonous serpents to strike the people. They grumbled and complained. It's why God struck Miriam with leprosy, because she grumbled and complained. It's why the the, the ground opened up and swallowed some of the people because they grumbled and complained. Because grumbling and complaining is a big deal to God. Why? Because grumbling mouth reveals a heart of discontent. A heart that is not satisfied with God. And our passage today teaches us that a person that is overly critical with his words is overly critical with his heart. Because you realize that what you say with your mouth comes from your heart. It doesn't start with simply speaking evil. It starts with judgment on my part of another person. It's why, notice the second part of the first clause in verse 11 of James. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother. You see, tearing each other down both verbally doesn't start with simply what we say. It begins with a heart of pride and self-exaltation. So several weeks ago, my family and I, I uh, wanted to have a family night, and typically we simply watch a movie, but I decided to change it up. So we we went to Mason City to go bowling together. And so we we get there just in time. We grab some pizza, grab some pop. We sit down to go bowling, and they lower the lights for galactic bowling. My kids are in heaven. They think this is amazing. And, and so we we start to bowl. And, and you know, customarily, typically, whenever we do something athletic, I'm generally the best one because I'm the oldest and I'm I'm dad and that's just how things are. And and I've always taken a lot of confidence that I'm good at sports. Not every sport, not like basketball or swimming, but I'm I'm pretty good at sports. And I just figured that bowling would fall into that category. And yet that night I had the worst, I had the worst frame of bowling I've had in my entire life. I I, I could not understand what was happening. You know, you throw your first one, it's a gutter ball, that kind of happens. The second one, you knock down one pin, you're like, okay. But by the fifth frame, something's wrong, like cosmically wrong at this moment because my wife is beating me and my eight-year-old son is like 10 points behind me, catching up, and I'm going, what is happening here? And I'm getting more and more frustrated. I'm starting to sulk. I'm not saying anything because, hey, I'm a pastor and I'm dad and I wouldn't do that. But in my heart, I'm freaking out. My son's not supposed to beat me for another 10 years. Right? I'm never going to live this down if they both trounce me. And my wife looks over at me. She smiles because she knows she's beating me. And my kid looks at me like, Dad, I might beat you. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And at that moment, in my desperation, I looked over at the family next to us. I see this gentleman with his three sons and his wife, and I realize I might not be beating my wife or my son, but I'm beating that guy. (laughs) It doesn't matter who that guy is. I have no idea who this dude is. I've never met him before in my life, but hey, I'm beating his kids, I'm beating his wife, and I'm beating him. And you know what? At that moment, that's good enough for me. Why? Because I'm judging. And I'm judging from a place of personal pride, And personal exaltation. Why is he the standard? Why is my wife not the standard? Because I'm not beating my wife. But I am beating him. And so I'll make him the standard because that makes me look good. Now that might be a silly story. But I want you to think about it for a second. That story proves the thing I'm preaching against is found in my own heart. The seeds of this sin are in my own heart. And if I don't deal with those, if I don't root those out, if I allow them to grow, the next story might not be so silly. Because what am I consoling myself with? Not the fact that God is on the throne and this bowling doesn't matter, but I can beat that guy. It's why we slander. It's why we judge. It's why we make other people the standard or ourselves a standard, is because, hey, that makes us look good. And yet James is saying that when you judge your brother by your own standard, by extension, you are saying that God's standard is not good enough. Look at verse 11. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. You are judging the law. By extension, you are saying God's law doesn't cut it. And yet Paul tells us in Romans 3.31 that Christians are called to uphold the law and that brings us to our second point that we are to guard the unity of the church by making the law of god our standard the law of god which is supposed to be our standard is supposed to provide security away from conflict away from division because you realize when you make god the standard all of a sudden that evokes humility in your own heart it also tells you to prioritize what actually matters Bowling doesn't matter. The color of the carpet doesn't matter. What instruments are played on a Sunday morning, not on the priority list. You realize how much we're able to, um, how much conflict in the church would be, would, it wouldn't exist if we simply said, okay, what is God's word prioritize, and what are not my personal preferences? I'm not judging by my own standard. I'm judging by the law of God, a law of love. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16 through 18, we are told you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. This is where James is pulling from. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It seems like I heard that last part somewhere else. It was the Lord Jesus that said, love your neighbor as yourself. That is the second greatest law. Which means this not only governs what I say, but how we say it. That how we say something says a lot about what we're saying in the first place. That we look for our priorities in Scripture. We allow the law of love and the law of God to be our standard. And in that moment, it guards us from division. It guards us from personal preferences, from self-exaltation, from pride. Why? Because we're following the same Lord, the same standard, with the same rule book. Recently, uh, I was talking to my sister. It was her 24th birthday. And as I was talking on the phone, it occurred to me, you know, kid, when when I was your age, I was already married. In fact, by your age, I already had a son. And my sister goes, I can't believe that. I said, no, it's true. She's like, I could never be a parent at this age. You know, I just, I'm not ready. And I said, well, (laughs) nobody's ever ready to be a parent. You just kind of, it happens. And then you just have to make it work. You have to grow up. That's how God made it. Um, And she's like, but you've been married for how long now? I said, we're going on 10 years. Praise God. And she said, yeah, but do you still, I mean, 10 years, that's a long time. Do you still love her like you did when you first got married? I thought about her for a second. I said, absolutely not. I love her way more. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be, that over time you increase in love. And she just, there was a pause on the phone. We're talking because she lives in Michigan. And she said, how's that possible? I said, you don't want to know. You see, my sister's not a Christian. She said, yo, I really do want to know. I said, you probably don't want to know. She said, no, I want to know. Patrick, I want to know. And I said, well, it's because we're Christians. It's because we play by the same rule book, that we love each other as Christ loved us. We forgive as Christ forgave us, that we serve one another as Christ served us. And we have the same Lord, and we follow the same, the same guidelines. And as we do so, we grow in love. And even when we come into conflict, even when we sin against each other, we handle it in a biblical way, and we both follow the same rule book. And in so doing, our relationship is transformed. Friends, that no longer that doesn't only apply to marriage, for the Christians, that applies to our relationships in church, amongst the people of God. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one rule book, one set of priorities. Which guards our mouths, which guards our motives, and which guards even the way we say things. Scripture is our standard of judgment because when we say God's, when we judge others by our standard, what we're actually saying is God's law is not good enough. And what we are saying by extension is that God himself is not good enough, that he is not doing a good enough job as a judge of all the earth, and he needs my help. That's why James puts in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? That brings us to our third and final point. that We are to guard the unity of the church by recognizing God as judge. And, And when you recognize God as judge, it does multiple things. First and foremost, it frees you up just to be you. You don't have to have a Messiah complex. You don't have to think you're in control of everything. You don't have to control everything. Why? Because he is doing that for you. And so when things don't go the way they're supposed to, even when somebody sins against you, like Bullinger, you don't have to lash out. You don't have to respond in kind. Why? Because there is a judge. And at the end of the day, no one's getting away with anything. Everybody will answer for their actions. You don't have to take vengeance into your own hand. You don't have to take justice into your own hand. God's got that. Second, it should evoke humility in our hearts to realize that God's not only going to judge them. He's going to judge me too. And you know what? They're not the only ones who have blown it. This week, knowing I was going to preach this sermon, I have said enough things to damn me to hell for eternity. I have had a harsh spirit. I have had a heart of pride and self-exaltation. I have judged others unrighteously, according to my own standard. And as that happens, I'm reminded I'm not God. I don't measure up. I'm not perfect. But you know, the good news of Christianity is this. Somebody else was perfect for you. The reason why we obey the law, the reason why we set the law as our standard is not because we can keep the law, because someone else kept the law for us. And the reason why we pursue obedience to the law and honoring Christ is not because we can save ourselves by, by our own merit, by our own good works, but because of the good works of Christ. Because we have been saved, we seek to honor Him with our life, with our conduct, with our actions, with our words. Because Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I have failed to live. He never slandered anybody. He never spoke evil. He never gossiped. He never overly criticized somebody. He never grumbled and complained. And he had a lot more to grumble and complain about than you and I. And then he took the place of a grumbler, of a complainer, of a slanderer, of a gossiper on the cross. He died the death that we deserve. But then he rose again from the grave. And in so doing, he promises you grace. He promises mercy for everyone who repented, believed in them. He promises you his spirit to overcome those desires those fleshly responses. If you would seek him, if you would trust him, if you would follow him, he will give you the grace to not respond, to not lash out, and to walk in his ways. And so scripture teaches us not to speak evil against one another. It teaches us to make the law of the Lord our priority, our standard, our precedent. And it teaches us to recognize God as judge. And in so doing, We are united in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are sufficient to save. That you are all glorious and all gracious and all kind to us. We who are sinners. We who fail with our mouths on a moment to moment basis. Not to mention our hearts. That we pray that as we go forward, that we would be united in Christ united in his gospel me united in love we ask this for his sake amen